This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 117th edition of the program. Today is November 2nd, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors who signed up just this last week. So we have Aaron, Alan Hopper, Ando Fix, Arctic Falcon, Barrett Howard Harris, Darren Page, David Leach, David Leafhopper, Aaron... Gerardo Peralta, Grant Dawson, Jared Q. Nymeyer, Josh Baldwin, Katz, Kia Kiani, Stephen Hibbard, and Thomas Carver. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash the humanist report. So on today's episode, first, I'll give you a comprehensive breakdown on special counselor Robert Mueller's indictments, along with all of the other controversy surrounding Trump, the Clintons, and Russia. Now, it may not look too good for Trump right now, but I'll talk about how Pat Robertson is one individual that's at least on his side, and how he thinks Donald Trump should respond to Mueller's investigation. Also, Tom Perez is using Debbie Wasserman Schultz's tactics to rig primaries against progressive candidates. Tulsi Gabbard calls on the DNC to reform, and MSNBC's Joanne Reed talked about last week's progressive purge from the DNC, and of course, she did a predictably horrible job. We'll also talk about how a new Harvard-Harris poll vindicates everything progressives have been saying. And when it comes to media bias, I'll provide you with an update to a Fox News segment I talked about last week, and we'll discuss how MSNBC is finally doing something that they should have done a long time ago. Also, Senate Republicans voted to make it harder for you to sue banks. And finally, in this episode, we'll talk about how the U.S. government expanded its spy apparatus and just how many countries we're currently occupying. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's edition of The Humanist Report. Let's go ahead and jump right in, starting with the bombshell that is the Mueller indictments handed down on Monday. Hope you guys enjoy the show. After Robert Mueller announced his decision to indict Manafort, Gates, and Papadopoulos, Washington, D.C. was sent into complete and utter chaos. So we had the Donald Trump administration visibly shook from this announcement. We also had both sides of the aisle using the most hackiest arguments possible, which can basically be summarized as, you colluded with Russia. No, you colluded with Russia. Now, seeing that I'm someone who hates both Republicans and Democrats, not equally, but nonetheless, I despise both of them. I think I'm the best individual here to give you the full context and show you how both sides and pretty much everyone may be guilty for different reasons. So first of all, we'll start with Robert Mueller's announcement on Monday. So according to Pete Williams and Adam Edelman of NBC News, 
They report that former Donald Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and his longtime business associate Rick Gates were indicted by a federal grand jury on 12 charges, including conspiracy against the U.S., special counselor Robert Mueller's office announced Monday. Other charges against Manafort and Gates include money laundering, being an unregistered foreign agent, and seven counts of failure to file reports of foreign bank and financial accounts. The indictment says that both men generated tens of millions of dollars as a result of their lobbying work for the Ukraine. They hid the payments from 2006 through 2016 by laundering the money through scores of U.S. and foreign corporations, partnerships, and banks, according to the charges. The indictment says that Manafort used his offshore accounts to directly wire payments for his personal expenses, which allowed him to avoid paying taxes on that income. They both entered not guilty pleas at their arraignment inside a federal courtroom in Washington, D.C. on Monday afternoon. In addition, George Papadopoulos, who had been a foreign policy advisor to Trump during the campaign, pleaded guilty to making false statements to the FBI, according to Mueller's office. He entered the guilty plea in Chicago three weeks ago. The unsealed indictment stated that Papadopoulos misrepresented the timing, extent, and nature of his relationship and interactions with certain foreign nations whom he understood to have close connections with senior Russian government officials. Now, on the same day that these indictments were unsealed, we learned that someone on the left who was previously connected to Paul Manafort may also be in trouble given his decision to abruptly resign from his lobbying firm. So according to Anna Palmer of Politico, Democratic power lobbyist Tony Podesta, founder of the Podesta Group, is stepping down from the firm that bears his name after coming under investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller. The investigation into Podesta and his firm grew out of investigators' examination of Manafort's finances. Manafort organized a PR campaign on behalf of a nonprofit called the European Center for a Modern Ukraine. Podesta Group was one of several firms that were paid to do work on the PR campaign to promote Ukraine in the U.S. Podesta Group filed paperwork with the Justice Department in April, stating that it had done work for the European Center for a Modern Ukraine that also benefited the same Ukrainian political party that Manafort once advised. Podesta Group said at the time it believed its client was a European think tank untethered to a political party. And yes, that is the Tony Podesta who just so happens to be the brother of John Podesta, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager in 2016. Now, these indictments rattled a lot of corrupt politicians in Washington, but much to the chagrin of Democrats, they don't necessarily provide evidence that Donald Trump did in fact collude with the Russians to sway the election against Hillary Clinton, nor do they demonstrate that Russia actually did tip the scales against Hillary Clinton. However, wealthy, powerful people who were overtly corrupt that used their influence to personally enrich themselves may now be in trouble for their criminal behavior. Now, this is part of the reason why I actually approved of Democrats' desire for an independent investigation into Trump and Russia, in spite of the fact that it might just turn into a big witch hunt. Not because I wanted a McCarthyist red-baiting witch hunt. That's not what I wanted. But because I knew that there was a possibility that this type of corruption could be exposed in an independent investigation. And now I'm proven right by that. Now I'm loving 
all of this right now because Robert Mueller is doing what others have previously failed to do. Hold powerful people accountable when they actually commit crimes. Because previously, in the United States, it's always been the case that we live in this two-tier justice system where the poor actually get prosecuted when they commit crimes, but the wealthy and powerful, they get away with everything. But Robert Mueller is actually holding these crooks accountable. Now, of course, since Paul Manafort, Gates, Papadopoulos, they're all connected to Donald Trump, well, this obviously doesn't bode well for his administration. And it really makes him look bad, which is why there are now reports that are coming out which indicate that Donald Trump is fuming as he watches all of this unfold on cable TV. Now, the Washington Post reports that, unsurprisingly, Trump's anger Monday was visible to those who interacted with him, and the mood in the corridors of the White House was one of wariness and fear of the unknown. As the president groused upstairs, many staffers, some of whom have hired lawyers to help them navigate Mueller's investigation, privately speculated about where the special counsel might turn next. The walls are closing in, said one senior Republican in close contact with top staffers who spoke on the condition of anonymity to speak candidly. Everyone is freaking out. And it's very clear that even Trump himself is freaking out. And you can gauge just how terrified he is by looking at the tweet storm he posted immediately after this was announced. So on Twitter, he states, Never seen such Republican anger and unity as I have concerning the lack of investigation on Clinton-made fake dossier, now 12 million. The uranium to Russia deal, the 33,000 plus deleted emails, the Comey fix, and so much more. Instead, they look at phony Trump-Russia collusion, which doesn't exist. The Dems are using this terrible and bad for our country witch hunt for evil politics, but the Republicans are now fighting back like never before. There is so much guilt by Democrats and Clinton, and now the facts are pouring out. Do something. All of this Russia talk, right when the Republicans are making their big push for historic tax cuts and reform, is this coincidental? Not. Report out that Obama campaign paid 972000 to Fusion GPS. The firm also got $12.4 million, really, from DNC. Nobody knows who okayed. Sorry, but this is years ago, before Paul Manafort was part of Trump campaign. But why aren't crooked Hillary and Dems the focus? Also, there is no collusion. So, it's very evident that what Donald Trump is doing here is taking any and all past scandals involving Hillary Clinton and Russia, and he's throwing them all against the wall to see which ones will stick now. So clearly, this is a tactic to deflect any attention on his corruption away from him and onto Hillary Clinton. So I think this is a really sleazy tactic. We all know that Hillary Clinton is corrupt, but two things can be true simultaneously. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are both corrupt. Now, the reason why he seems to be shaking in his boots isn't necessarily because he's worried that Mueller will find out that he colluded with Russia in order to tip the scales against Hillary Clinton in some way, shape, or form, but what was first an investigation into only potential collusion between Trump and Russia has since expanded, and now that investigation includes Donald Trump's business dealings with Russian oligarchs. Some of these business dealings could pose a conflict of interest or or even be illegal. And it's now the case that this investigation should actually scare him because when it comes to Donald Trump's business deals with Russian oligarchs, this is a completely different story. We all know that he probably has some unsavory ties to Russian oligarchs. Um, he may owe them money. We don't know what's going on there. But now it's truly the case that this investigation 
could bring down Donald Trump's administration based on that corruption aspect alone. And we now know, based on these indictments, that Robert Mueller doesn't mess around. He's not James Comey. He will indict powerful people. So that's why Donald Trump is incredibly terrified right now, and he's doing everything in his power to deflect and get us to look away from his potential corruption and look at what Hillary Clinton was doing. And Trump now knows that it's only a matter of time until Mueller uncovers overt corruption that could one day lead to him being impeached. And to him, that's obviously terrifying. Now, that's not to say that discovering collusion is completely out of the question. I think that we should keep an open mind. Although, what we've seen thus far in terms of evidence that Russia has swayed the election against Hillary Clinton, well, it's not very persuasive. I don't think Pokemon Go was effectively used to sow discord in the United States and tip the scales against Hillary. I don't believe that Russian trolls posing as Black Lives Matter activists and Dakota Access Pipeline protesters on social media is enough to tip the scales against Hillary Clinton. But when it comes to the question of collusion, we do know that Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort all met with a Russian lawyer in June of last year in order to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. Now, Democrats claim that this is actually tantamount to collusion with the Russian government, specifically because this lawyer was actually connected to the Kremlin. But... The problem is that that connection is tenuous at best, and even if she was hypothetically directly connected to the Kremlin, the question then becomes whether or not this is collusion with the Russian government if Trump Jr. didn't know about her affiliation with the Kremlin. Now, on the other hand, Republicans have flipped the story around, and they're now alleging that this meeting was set up by Democrats in order to entrap the Trump campaign, but... There's also not much evidence to validate this theory either. So both sides are being incredibly disingenuous about the facts that have come to light. But with that being said, getting back to Donald Trump trying to evade criticism by shining the spotlight on Hillary Clinton, even if what he's doing is an obvious diversion tactic, well, is he exaggerating? Yes, he is exaggerating with some of the details. Is he entirely technically wrong, however? Not entirely, actually. So as you all know, conservative media outlet, the Washington Free Beacon, was paying a company called Fusion GPS to do opposition research on Donald Trump when he was running in the Republican primaries in 2016. Now, once they stopped funding this research in April, once it became clear that Trump was going to be the Republican Party's nominee, Hillary Clinton's campaign, along with the DNC, well, they then decided that they would now foot the bill since the Washington Free Beacon was no longer going to do that. So, at this point in April, Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC were now paying Fusion GPS for this research. Now, there's nothing wrong with opposition research. In fact, I think that opposition research, generally speaking, is really important because we need to be as informed as possible about these candidates before we make our decision. However, to suggest that this was just opposition research is a gross oversimplification because, first of all, according to Adav Nodi of The Hill, the Clinton campaign and the DNC did not comply with their legal obligation to disclose their payments to Fusion for opposition research. Instead, they concealed the fact that any payments were made to Fusion at all. Rather than disclosing the spending, the campaign and the DNC told the FEC the money had gone to their law firm and the Clinton campaign said that it had made the payments for, quote, legal services. In other words, the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign broke the law 
by lying about how they were spending their money and they did not disclose this to the FEC. If you're going to fund opposition research, then you need to disclose that information. We need full transparency. We need to know how you're spending that money. But this isn't the only problem because it actually does get worse for Hillary Clinton. So as Paul Roderick Gregory of Forbes explains, the most undercovered story of Russiagate is the interconnection between the Clinton campaign and unregistered foreign agent of Russia headquartered in DC, Fusion GPS, and the Christopher Steele Orbis dossier. The fusion story has been known since Senator Chuck Grassley sent a heavily footnoted letter to the Justice Department on March 31st of 2017 demanding for his Judiciary Committee all relevant documents on Fusion GPS, the company that managed the Steele dossier against then-candidate Donald Trump. Grassley writes to justify his demand for documents that the issue is of particular concern to the committee given that when Fusion GPS reportedly was acting as an unregistered agent of Russian interests, it appears to have been simultaneously overseeing the creation of the unsubstantiated dossier of allegations of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and the Russians. Now understand that this dossier alleges that Donald Trump was giving the Russians favorable treatment because they were blackmailing him with a tape that they had of him getting peed on by Russian hookers while he stayed in a Russian hotel. Now, there is zero evidence that this tape even exists. However, other elements of this dossier were proven true. So, this is really, I mean, you have to look at this dossier in a nuanced manner. Parts of it turned out to be true, parts of it false. Zero evidence, at least at this point. But what we do know is that the company Fusion GPS was an unregistered foreign agent. And this entire Trump-Russia kerfuffle was initially catalyzed by the idea that Donald Trump committed treason by working with a foreign government to sway the election. And now it seems as though the accusers, i.e. Hillary Clinton and the DNC, may be guilty of doing the same exact thing that they accused Donald Trump of doing. But another way that Donald Trump is trying to deflect criticism away from himself and onto Hillary Clinton is by bringing up the Uranium One deal. Now, is he entirely wrong here? Not exactly. Again, he's exaggerating and he, do he doesn't have all of the details right. But this is still a pretty fishy situation. So John Solomon and Allison Spann of The Hill reports, before the Obama administration approved the controversial deal in 2010, giving Moscow control of a large swath of American uranium, the FBI had gathered substantial evidence that Russian nuclear industry officials were engaged in bribery, kickbacks, extortion, and money laundering designed to grow Vladimir Putin's atomic energy business inside the United States, according to government documents and interviews. Federal agents used a confidential U.S. witness working inside the Russian nuclear industry to gather extensive financial records, make secret recordings, and intercept emails as early as 2009 that showed Moscow had compromised an American uranium trucking firm with bribes and kickbacks in violation of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, FBI and court documents show. They also obtained an eyewitness account backed by documents indicating Russian nuclear officials had routed millions of dollars to the U.S. designed to benefit former President Bill Clinton's charitable foundation during the time Secretary of State Hillary Clinton served on a government body that provided a favorable decision to Moscow, sources told The Hill. 
Bill Clinton collected hundreds of thousands of dollars in Russian speaking fees and his charitable foundation collected millions in donations from parties interested in the deal while Hillary Clinton presided on the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Now, the reason why this looks bad for Hillary Clinton is because while she was on the Committee on Foreign Investment, she was one of nine people to approve this deal. Well, it's the case that Russians turned out, according to the FBI, if we can believe them, but we do have to be skeptical, the Russians were trying to bribe public officials to get this deal through, and it just so happened that they gave Bill Clinton speaking fees and individuals who invested in Uranium One, who would profit from this deal going through, donated money to the Clinton Foundation. Now, it's also the case that liberals are just dismissing this altogether, and I understand why they may initially feel inclined to do this, and that's because Donald Trump has misrepresented this case. But while liberals like Joanne Reed are desperately trying to downplay this, the facts are still troubling even when you go beyond the headlines. So liberals claim that this is just a nothing burger because there's currently no evidence of a quid pro quo. But that's not a very persuasive argument because corrupt public officials usually make sure to cover their tracks. Now, liberals also claim that since most of the donations to the Clinton Foundation from investors in Uranium One had already sold their stock in the company by the time this deal came before the Committee on Foreign Investment, well then, it obviously isn't a bribe. But that's really disingenuous because there were still millions that were donated to the Clinton Foundation from investors of Uranium One. So it may not be $145 million from people who hadn't sold their stock yet, but from people who were investing in Uranium One, it was about $4 million. That's still problematic. Yes, the story was initially exaggerated, but that's still incredibly problematic and troubling. In fact, even in trying to downplay the significance of what looks to be overt corruption, PolitiFact claimed that donations from Uranium One investors that hadn't sold their stocks in the company before Hillary became Secretary of State and oversaw this deal was just $4 million. But still, that's, that's a huge number to give to a public official who's going to oversee a deal that would heavily favor your company. Now, liberals are also saying that right-wingers are blowing this out of proportion because Hillary Clinton was just one of nine individuals to approve this deal. But that doesn't eliminate the possibility that investors in Uranium One had given that $4 million to Hillary Clinton to influence her decision, even if they just sway one individual. Well, that's still problematic. Even if they still would approve of this Uranium One deal today with no bribes, well, still the fact that Hillary Clinton's foundation accepted these bribes, the fact that Bill Clinton accepted speaking fees from Russia, that's still incredibly problematic. You can't deny that. And even PolitiFact says that this looks, quote, fishy. And Hillary Clinton herself even called these allegations baloney, saying, I think the real story is how nervous they are about these continuing investigations. So, do you see what's happening here? <laughs> Donald Trump, people within his administration, get indicted, and then he points to Hillary Clinton and says, no, you're colluding with Russia, and then... Hillary Clinton, she points the finger back at Donald Trump and says, well, no, you're colluding with Russia. And meanwhile, followers of Hillary Clinton and followers of Donald Trump, they go along with this and they're unable to, to see the glaring hypocrisy on both sides. Is the Uranium One case, is that the best example that demonstrates 
just how corrupt Hillary Clinton is? No, it's not. But the reason why Donald Trump brought it up, reasonably so, is to demonstrate how she was also tied to Russia. Do we currently have evidence that Donald Trump himself knowingly colluded with Russia in order to sway the election? No, we don't. But it's probably the case that he does have corrupt business dealings in Russia. That may not have had any impact on the election, but it's still problematic. It's still corruption. But bringing it back to the allegations that both sides continues to lob against each other, loyalists of both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are unable to see past their own hypocrisy. And it's so frustrating to me. And both sides, they look at politics as though it's a team sport. And whatever their team captain says, they're willing to go along with it. No questions asked, no objectivity whatsoever. Whatever Donald Trump says, his followers will go along with that. Whatever Hillary Clinton says, her followers will go along with that. And it's, again, it's really frustrating, but here's the reality. Both sides are corrupt and probably guilty and probably associated with Russia in some way, shape, or form, albeit for different reasons. Trump's corrupt business deals in Russia might just come back and bite him in the ass, whereas Hillary Clinton's corruption in the form of bribes taken from the Clinton Foundation, while there may be no evidence of a quid pro quo here, well, we'd be dense to not see what's really going on. This is bribery. This is corruption. They're all liars, and both sides are just as willing to point the finger at the other to deflect from criticism that they're receiving. So as Mueller's investigation expands, because he did expand it to Tony Podesta's lobbying firm, as it expands, I hope that people on both sides have to eat their words, because... This investigation now, it's really far-reaching. It's not just about Trump colluding with Russia to influence the election. This is now about corruption. This is now about Donald Trump being affiliated with corrupt Russian oligarchs. There is evidence that Hillary Clinton took bribes from Russian companies while she was voting on their behalf. Is she just one of nine people on that committee that approved the Uranium One deal? Yes, but nonetheless... That's still problematic, but both sides are unable to see what their team captain is doing wrong here. When most likely, there's a ton of corrupt public officials on the left and the right that will be exposed as a result of Mueller's investigation. And the people who think that their team is right and the other team is wrong no matter what, they need to understand that they look very foolish right now. And attempts used by both sides to distract are incredibly disingenuous because even though Donald Trump, clearly he wants to, again, divert that spotlight away from him and onto Hillary Clinton, well, that still doesn't change the fact that you're probably going to be exposed as a corrupt businessman because there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, but in shining the spotlight on Hillary Clinton, yeah, she's going to be exposed as a corrupt secretary of state. So there's a lot of evidence of corruption on both sides. And now I think that this investigation is more important than ever because I think that corruption that is done by public officials in powerful positions needs to be addressed and they need to be punished. So I hope that all of these corrupt public officials get what's coming to them. If they actually did uh, take bribes or, or collude with foreign agents in any way, shape or form. So look, here's, here's what we all need to keep in mind. We have to be objective and try to see past our own biases that make it difficult to see what the other side is talking about here. Because now, I've, I've seen evidence on both sides that they're all corrupt. But we also can't deny the fact that Donald Trump is the president. Hillary Clinton has no political power. She still influences the Democratic Party. But Donald Trump is currently 
the president. So someone who is currently overseeing policy, I think that their corruption is important. Hillary Clinton's corruption still needs to be addressed, but Donald Trump is currently in power. He's now legislating. He's influencing policy in a really substantial way. So I want to get to his corruption first. I don't care so much about what Hillary Clinton did in the past. We now see that there's a lot of corruption that went on that influenced her decisions, not just when she was Secretary of State, but while she was a senator. But that's in the past. And yes, let's address it. But Donald Trump is the president right now. So we need to make sure that we stop his corruption, because if we don't, then that could affect future policy decisions that he makes. So look, at the end of the day, this is a really complex and convoluted story. The details are very nuanced and difficult to understand, but realize that both sides are incredibly disingenuous and we need to be extra careful and just accepting any and everything that one side says over the other. And also, I think it's funny that Fox News is not talking about this at all. They're covering emojis. So it's just mind boggling to me, really, that <laughs> we have so much, you know, uh, so much manipulation going on and deflection going on. Look, I hate to break it to you, but Washington, D.C. is a swamp. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are corrupt. Trump's deflections doesn't change the fact that he's corrupt. Hillary's deflections doesn't change the fact that she's corrupt. But this investigation is particularly important as it pertains to Trump because he's the president. I want to make sure that Donald Trump is not doing the bidding of any government, of any business that he had ties with while he was a businessman. And that's all I'll say about this. So if you tuned into cable news last week, then you would have had no idea that Tom Perez and the DNC purged progressives and anyone who wasn't loyal to him or the party establishment. But one individual in the mainstream media decided to talk about the DNC's purge of progressives. Surprisingly, that individual is Joanne Reed on MSNBC, host of AM Joy. Now, if you're wondering whether or not she's going to provide us with an accurate representation of what happened, uh, you're horribly mistaken or you don't know about Joanne Reed. She's been on my radar because she is one of the most disingenuous pundits. She smears progressives and Bernie Sanders supporters. She misrepresents facts and she never gives us an accurate representation of stories pertaining to Democratic Party infighting, and she always does propaganda on behalf of the Democratic Party establishment. So in this first clip here, she speaks with one of her guests about what actually happened during this event wherein Tom Perez did in fact decide to purge progressives. So right now, Democrats should be coming together to plot their strategy for the 2018 midterms, their next chance to take back the levers of power in Congress and potentially maybe even, I don't know, impeach Donald Trump. Instead, they're fighting each other. News from last week's DNC meeting in Las Vegas centered around a squabble over who would sit on key committees within the DNC, with some claiming the DNC was purging supporters of Bernie Sanders and others claiming that Bernie supporters were trying to undermine women of color. So what gives? This sort of dust up at the organizing meeting, what was supposed to be a positive sort of organizing meeting for Democrats, wound up centering around who was getting purged, Bernie Sanders or black women. What happened? Well, well, um, well just 
it, 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 that meeting and that organizing meeting sort of is an example of what's going on with democratic politics all across the country. Um, is that there are multiple uh, factions or groups within the party, right? And, and this is, you know, both the Democratic Party and the sure. Republican Party, right? Everybody, there, there are multiple groups that you have to keep happy. Um, but particularly for the Democratic Party, it has a, a, a large communication and branding issue. There's the Democratic Party, the infrastructure, and then there's Democratic Party, the party, and the Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, and here at this meeting, you had this perception, right, that the Democratic Party was leaving on, you know, at the expense of women of color, right, and going forward with another agenda and going forward with other people who may not be uh, Democrats, Democrats, actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and following down this agenda, right? And so, you know, even though that wasn't true, at least to give cre uh, credit to the current chairman at this time, that wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to do that, sure. right? His slate included um, uh, women of color, but the perception got out, right? And so because of that, you already had a problem with women of color and with the base of the party mm -hmm. not believing that the party um, has their values or has their back, and we'll talk about later how that also plays out in different states. Yeah. Um, and so when you don't have a communication infrastructure, when you don't have trust, right, between the communities or the base that you um, are supposed to represent, it's easy for those things to uh, uh take legs. So that clip was borderline incoherent because it almost seemed as though they were both speaking in riddles because they wanted to smear progressives, but they didn't want it to be overt. So they had something they wanted to say, but they kind of circled around it and tap danced around it. But after watching that segment multiple times and trying to extrapolate what they were actually saying, it seems very clear that Joanne Reed's guest implied that at this meeting, there was this perception that the Democratic Party was trying to appease Bernie supporters, who aren't even Democrats, of course, you know, they had to bring that up, at the expense of women of color, which is the party's true base. Now, even though Tom Perez himself isn't guilty of this, according to them, there's still this overall sense that the DNC is bending over backwards to appease the Bernie wing of the party, and they're doing this to the detriment of women of color. Now, the problem with this is that it's a complete misrepresentation of the events that unfolded last week. That's not what happened at all. The DNC is not trying to appease Bernie supporters. They were the ones purged from the party, remember? And the alleged attempt to, quote, ouster women of color from the DNC was a story that was probably fabricated by a DNC insider in order to make it seem as though Bernie supporters were just racist and against women of color being on the DNC after they called on Donna Brazile to be removed from the rules committee. So either Joanne Reed's guest here was lying or she was just uninformed and being a host, you have a responsibility to call out misinformation. So you allowed her to lie or mislead viewers without checking her. So Joy Reid is just as guilty as her guest here because that's not what happened at all. The DNC is not doing anything to appease progressives. They are trying to put up a barrier to prevent progressives from getting power within the DNC. And also they're shutting off progressive challengers access to NGP van. So they're, to say that the DNC is trying to appease progressives at all is wrong, but to say that they're trying to appease progressives to the detriment of women of color is even more wrong. And I love how at the beginning of the clip here, Joanne Reed talks about how, oh, you know, the party should be, uh, they should not be fighting right now. They should be focusing on 2018. She acts as though she's above the fray, but she's one of the main contributors to Democratic Party infighting because she arbitrarily 
smears Bernie Sanders and his supporters. How many Twitter rants have I covered of her where she just makes up lies about Bernie Sanders? A lot. <laughs> so Joy Reid is... She's being incredibly disingenuous here, and she brought on that guest probably because she knew the guest would do exactly what she wanted her to do, propaganda for the Democratic Party establishment and the DNC. Now, the whole segment wasn't over yet because there was another guest that Joy Ann Reid called on to diagnose the issue and tell us really why the left is divided, and it didn't get any better. In fact, I think that with this analysis here it got much worse can we just focus on this thing go back to this thing about the dnc can we go up thirty thousand feet two men of color run the dnc and there was an effort to purge three women of color from the dnc at what at what level was that smart i mean i i, I that's the kind of thing where i just as a as a progressive southern gay male want to slam my head up against the wall and go who who thought of that who thought that was a good idea it doesn't matter. What matters is this. If we're going to sit around and fight each other, the crazies on the right are going to win. And by the way, they did win in 2016 because of the infighting. I was asking some folks this morning, people that have been around in politics as long as I have, have some even longer. And I said, is this nothing more than just a rehashing of 2016 of the Bernie versus Hillary thing and they all said no I think it is I think that the fact of the matter is is that you have the left of the left pissed off that they didn't get their candidate I get that I understand that but when you don't win then you don't get to name the people when you don't win then your ideas didn't win and so last time I checked Hillary Clinton won the nomination she did not win the White House and if we would like to win in 2018, and we would like to win in 2020, I would suggest Democrats stop this inane infighting and learn that it doesn't matter who's the most progressive, it just matters that we beat them. It only matters. if you matters, can't do that, yeah. then they're gonna win. So get, get off it, I mean, it's just so dumb. It only matters if you win. So he's built up this straw man in his head about what really happened, and he's getting outraged based on that straw man. He said here, two men of color run the DNC, and there was an effort to purge three women of color from the DNC. At what level is that smart? Well, it wouldn't be smart, but there's zero evidence that anyone was trying to purge three women of color. That whole BuzzFeed article he's referring to was based on a rumor. Now, we already know that progressives received backlash and they tried to label us as racist for calling on Donna Brazil to be removed from the Rules Committee. But if you'll recall correctly, that's because Donna Brazil is corrupt. She's a liar. She's a cheater. She lied about cheating. And if anyone is going to be willing to break the rules, I would imagine she would be one of the first. So obviously she should not serve on the rules committee. That is a substantive reason to oppose her. It has nothing to do with her gender or ethnicity or race. And he also said other things that were problematic. He states here, I think the fact of the matter is that you have the left of the left pissed off that they didn't get their candidate. And I understand that. So he's patting us on the head to sympathize with us in a really condescending way. But when you don't win, then you don't get to name the people. If you didn't win, then your ideas didn't win. And so last time I checked, Hillary Clinton won the nomination. Right, but did she win the nomination fair and square? Because last time I checked, it was our ideas, progressive ideas that were actually winning when you look at public opinion polls. And furthermore, Hillary Clinton, 
she didn't win fair and square. The primary was rigged from day one against anyone that wanted to run against her. The WikiLeaks emails from the DNC and John Podesta confirm this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Notice how neoliberals always conveniently ignore this fact, and they deny that the DNC and Hillary Clinton rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders. So only in their deluded minds would they think that Russian trolls spending $200,000 on fake Facebook ads is more consequential than David Brock spending a million dollars during the primary to troll Bernie Sanders supporters. And also, in their minds, Russia using Pokemon Go to allegedly spread awareness about Black Lives Matter did more to tip the scales against Hillary Clinton, but Debbie Wasserman Schultz limiting debates and hiding Bernie Sanders' message away from the public, well, that didn't do anything to tip the scales against Bernie. But Pokemon Go tipped the scales against Hillary. And these are the same people who think that WikiLeaks releasing DNC emails, which were ignored by the media, was more consequential than the 100,000 registered Democratic voters that were illegally purged from the voting rolls in a New York district that was likely to go to Bernie Sanders. But please continue to drone on about how Vladimir Putin swayed the election in favor of Donald Trump while ignoring the real election that was rigged last year, the primaries. And we actually have evidence that this occurred. You have no evidence yet that Russia was actually able to have an impact on the election. We have evidence that the DNC, who was supposed to be neutral, who violated their own charter, they tried to not just rig the primaries by giving her an unfair advantage, but they actually actively tried to sabotage Bernie Sanders. So no, Hillary Clinton did not win fair and square. Therefore, she does not get to have all this power and say within the party after rigging it against people who opposed her. That's not acceptable. He also says here that we need to learn that it doesn't matter who's the most progressive. It just matters that we beat them. So first of all, you would, if you really believe that anyways, you would adopt our platform because we have a populist agenda that has majority support on the polls. And furthermore, what you're basically admitting here is that politics isn't about policy. It's about team politics. It's a team sport. And all that matters is that our team wins. Once they're in power, we're good. We can wash our hands and sit back and go out to brunch. But politics is inherently about policy. It is inextricably linked to policy. You cannot separate those two things. Politics and policy go hand in hand. So to suggest that you're okay so long as your team wins and you don't really care about the policy, well, either you are really dense or you're lying. And again, I think that these people are not dense. I don't think they're dumb. I think they're smart. And I think that they know that what they're doing is they are smearing Bernie Sanders supporters and they're trying to misrepresent the situation so that way this progressive purge is not as bad as all these progressives are making it seem. That's what this is about. So when I saw that Joy Reid covered the DNC progressive purge, I immediately had this gut feeling in my stomach that, oh man, this is going to be bad because a really important issue, you know, she's going to take that and she's going to lie and obfuscate and misrepresent everything that happened. And of course, that's exactly what she did. The DNC doesn't care about progressives. And that's something that everyone else can see except for you, Joy. We all know Joy Reid is a very intelligent individual. She's doing propaganda on behalf of the Democratic Party because she works for the propaganda arm, the PR arm of the Democratic Party, MSNBC. So she's doing exactly what she's paid to do. But if she's going to do that, then we've got to call her out because this is not acceptable. The DNC's purge of progressives is a huge story. So if you're going to cover it, get it right, Joy. So this segment will undoubtedly be my favorite 
from the show this week because I get to talk about a new poll from Harvard Harris that vindicates every single thing progressive political commentators like myself have been saying about the Democratic Party establishment over the course of the last two years, that they are so out of touch that they moved so far to the right that they no longer appeal to their left-wing base. They've become too conservative and certainly the Democratic Party's leadership is completely out of touch. And also, in addition to the Harvard-Harris poll, one of Trump's pollsters said what we've also been saying. Bernie would have won. <laughs> so, Andrew Joyce of Mike.com explains, a new Harvard-Harris poll finds that the majority of Democrats and the overwhelming majority of young Democrats believe that the party is insufficiently to the left. 52% of Democrats polled say that they support movements within the Democratic Party to take it even further to the left and oppose the current Democratic leaders. The strongest support for moving the party left came from young Democrats, with 69% of Democrats ages 18 to 34 saying they support those left movements. The poll also found that socialist Senator Bernie Sanders continues his streak as the country's most popular politician, with the highest favorables of any candidate among all respondents as well as among key subsets, including African Americans, Hispanic people, and young people. Meanwhile, nearly two-thirds of respondents felt that the current investigations into President Donald Trump's ties to Russia are hurting the country more than helping. Only 51% of Democrats felt the investigation was helping, with the other 49% arguing it was hurting. Those results, taken together, appear to bolster the left's broad critique of the Democratic Party, which accuses the party of focusing too much on feuding with Trump and not enough on building a coherent vision for the left. The poll comes out at a time when the National Democratic Party is plagued by infighting over its direction and future. A recent staff shakeup at the Democratic National Committee have left many in the Bernie wing of the party feeling as though the party leadership is determined to excise them from positions of power. Trump, for his part, remains significantly unfavorable, tied with his former presidential rival, Hillary Clinton, for the highest unfavorable rate in the country. But Trump's net favorable rating is actually higher than Clinton's, as well as several other high-profile politicians, including Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and Nancy Pelosi. So it's almost as if the respondents in this poll watched the Humanist Report. But <laughs> I'm not really saying anything uh, that insightful or informative. I think a lot of the the analyses that I provide about the Democratic Party, they're just common sense, even though I'd like to toot my own horn and say that I have just this, this special insight into what average voters want. I'm an average voter. I'm not an elite. So I know what we want, and it's common sense. We want you to look out for us and not your donors. But before we get further into this poll... Jacqueline Thompson of The Hill explains, Tony Fabrizio said at a Harvard University Institute of Politics event Monday that Sanders could have prevailed where Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton did not. There's no question that if it had been anybody other than Clinton or anybody other than Trump, that race would not have been as close as it was either way, Fabrizio said. It would not have been. When asked about what would happen during a Sanders-Trump matchup, Fabrizio replied, I think Sanders beats Trump. I think Sanders would have had the ability to reach a lot of the less-than-college-educated, low-income white voters, he added. So we have polls and pollsters telling us that, one, Bernie would have won, that the Democratic Party is too right-wing, and uh, that Trump-Russia is hurting the country, all this hysteria is hurting the country, more than helping. I mean, do we not get to take this moment to gloat? Do we not get to, to say, I told you so? 
because Bernie Sanders supporters have been saying these things, but the Democratic Party, they plug their ears and they pretend like we don't exist. And they try to smear us when we say these things and say that we are racist. So when we oppose someone in DNC leadership like Donna Brazile, they say it's because we don't like women of color. When we come out against Hillary Clinton because she supported the TPP, she voted for the Iraq War and the Patriot Act, it's because she's a woman and we're not comfortable with a woman being in the White House. So these are diversion tactics. They use identity politics to the detriment of progressives in the progressive movement, but what they don't realize is that they are making themselves look foolish and they're hurting the party long term because I hate to tell you guys this, but us younger voters, the, uh, what was it, 69% that say uh, they support movements like Justice Democrats that push the party to the left, we're the future of the party. We're going to take over one day whether you like it or not. And all you are doing in purging progressives and shutting off progressive challenges and their access to van ngp van all you're doing is delaying the inevitable at this point because these polls show that what we're saying it resonates with voters and i love how they also vindicate us when it comes to what we've been saying about bernie sanders what do we hear from uh joy reed well bernie sanders he's only about the white working class and that's his only base but what did they say here um bernie sanders has the highest favorables of any candidate among all respondents as well as among key subsets, including African-Americans, Hispanic, and young people. So this is in addition to another poll that showed that Bernie Sanders actually polls the highest among women of color. So everything that the Democratic Party establishment has been saying to you has been wrong. Anything these overpaid Democratic strategists and consultants have been saying has been wrong. So in trying to shut us out of the party, all you are doing is hurting yourselves. Yes, it is the case that currently you're hurting progressives. You're making it more likely that Republicans will win and that Donald Trump will defeat a Democratic primary challenger or a Democratic nominee in uh, 2020. And you're just hurting yourself. We have the winning strategy. We have the winning message. We know what it takes. We are the antidote to Donald Trump. Left-wing populism is the only antidote that can defeat right-wing extremism. We've seen this not just in the U.S., but in the U.K. and in countries across the world. There's a reason why we see a lot of Bernie Sanders-type figures popping up in other countries as a response to economic austerity, as a response to a right-wing extremist demagogue like Donald Trump. It's because that's the only thing that will resonate with people. A left-winger like Bernie Sanders who comes along and says, look... The system is rigged. You're being taken advantage of. And it's time that we look out for the many rather than the few, the rich few. And that's a message that resonates with everyone on the left and the right. So these polls, you know, it's more than about gloating and saying we were right, you were wrong. Hopefully, these polls actually have an impact. You read these polls if you are a strategist and you see that, yeah, what you're doing, this corruption... Uh, shutting out progressives that's not going to work long term it might it might work in the short term but long term we're coming for you 69 percent of the party of young democrats the future liberals we're coming for you and best believe that at the end of the day progressivism will win and that's going to happen regardless if the party tries to resist it or not so it is absolutely no secret by now that the left is divided and political pundits that pontificate on this issue, well, they tend to bring on 
Democratic Party strategists and political consultants that make millions of dollars to feed them the worst information ever. And if you really want to find out why it's the case that the left is divided, then wouldn't you bring on ordinary voters and not people who are the most detached from ordinary voters? You'd think, right? But that hasn't been the case up until this point. So besides a few exceptions, like the uh, Bernie Sanders town hall in West Virginia, MSNBC, they've brought on Democratic Party shills effectively, individuals who are insiders within the DNC or held powerful positions before, and they will just... They'll, they'll drone on and on and on about how, you know, it's Bernie bros are angry because they lost. They uh, falsely claim that the election was rigged against Bernie Sanders, but they don't actually listen. But if you are genuinely interested in learning why it's the case that the Democratic Party lost, not just in 2016, but in 2014 and 2010 and lost a thousand seats in state legislatures across the country, then you have to bring on ordinary people and talk with them. And MSNBC is finally doing that in a new segment called Dems Divided. Well, you've seen the polls and in America's heartland, Hallie, where frustration with Donald Trump is growing, there's no guarantee that's going to turn into Democratic votes. And I think a big part of it is that the same key factor that helped Donald Trump get elected, that feeling by millions of Americans that they're being ignored by the establishment, isn't being addressed in the way Democrats would like to see it addressed. That's what we found when we sat down in Racine, Wisconsin, with five voters fired up to oppose Donald Trump's policies. Show of hands, how many of you think the Democratic establishment is doing a good job right now? One tentative hand. <laughs> how many of you think the Democrats could blow a real opportunity in 2018? I do, absolutely. All five of you. So what's going on that makes you feel that way? I think that there's a lack of understanding of what the message is, if there is one. I think holistically, um, the Democrats need to um, listen more than they speak. Just ignoring the fact that people need a reason to come out to vote. It is not enough to say, well, these guys are marching with tiki torches and the president won't say anything about it. You have to come vote for us. That's not enough. They don't feel like they have to work for anyone's vote. Are, are you worried the party is becoming the anti-Trump party? It's easy to get caught up in the anger and say, like, Trump voters are this and Trump voters are that. But that's my family, too. You know, that is, those are my people that I grew up with. I feel like instead of having a plan, we're putting out fires. Instead of fighting for something, we're resisting. And this resistance has to turn into governance so that we have something to vote for instead of something to vote against. Every day there is an attack on just basic human rights and dignity that should we not respond, right? We have to, but we also need to respond with this is what we need to do instead. This is where we should be going. Democrats are good on social issues, but what are they doing economically to help people? Economics come first. But, Roof over my head, food on the table. But the, but the Democrats are the ones fighting for raising yeah, but, the minimum but wage. But that's the problem. Trump was like saying, okay, I'm going to fix this and we'll bring back jobs. No Democrat was saying that. It is constant fear. And the, the party that's tapping into that and realizes that and speaks to that isn't winning because all these people are evil or racist or ignorant. They're speaking to their base fears. Give me a way out of that. You'll take the health care burden off of me. That's a little less fear. You give me a living wage. That's a little less fear. That's not just a policy to make us popular because everyone wants to make $15 an hour. 
It's because you're starving if you're not. So this group and a lot of other Democratic voters I've talked to over the course of the last month or so, they're, yes, concerned about inter-party divide, but also, ultimately, will that keep them from capitalizing on what is clearly a battle within the Republican Party? Uh, you know, they've got record or near-record low approval ratings for the president and the GOP-controlled Congress, so they see opportunity, but they say clearly to me, Hallie, what's the message? So I think that that discussion was incredibly important because MSNBC is the one channel that really has the ear of the Democratic Party establishment. So if someone from within the party is likely to hear anything, it's going to come from MSNBC. So this is important. And I think that the insight from these average voters was really important here. So one of them said that the, the Democratic Party, they're ignoring the fact that people need a reason to come out and vote. Yes, I've said this probably a thousand times on this podcast, you can't just expect your core base to come out and vote against someone who is evil or crazy. You actually have to give them a reason to vote for you. You have to offer them something that will benefit their lives because that's the way voting works. Voting is a chore. You have to leave your house. You have to register. You have to stand in line sometimes for hours. In some states, if you're a person of color, you have to put up with these arbitrary voter ID laws that are designed to actually disenfranchise you. Voting is a chore. So if you really want voters to put in that effort, you have got to make the effort yourself to reach out to these voters. And I'm glad they made this uh, point here. Now, one panelist alluded to the fact that attacking Trump isn't enough. Yeah, that is an extension of the idea that you have to offer policies to voters in order to get them to vote for you. But certainly, if you're the opposition party, you can't just attack the party in power. You still have to offer an alternate view of the way you think society should be in America, of how you can make society more equitable, what you can do for the average American. They also said here that they don't feel as though, uh, that the party doesn't feel as though they have to work for anyone's vote. This is the hubris we saw with Hillary Clinton. That's exactly correct. Hillary Clinton just assumed that her core base would come out and vote for her no matter what, even after she rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders, spit in their faces, selected uh, a running mate who was to her right when people were afraid that she was too right-wing to be the Democratic Party's leader. Uh, but she just expected that they would vote for her no matter what. And what did she do? She went on to court Republicans, moderate Republicans. So this is something that you just cannot expect. You never, ever, ever should be cocky enough to assume that you are going to have your base no matter what. Because if you've been losing, that's an indication that you are not appeasing your base. Now, one guy said here, economics come first, roof over my head, food on the table. So basically, the implication here is that the Democratic Party needs to prioritize economics over identity politics. Now, I would actually say that you don't have to just prioritize economics. You can have both. You can, you can actually look out for people of color and disadvantaged minorities. Um, you, you can have that while simultaneously catering to economic interests as well. That's really important. But the Democratic Party, they don't realize that they can have it both ways. And they're being purposefully obtuse here because if they really did fight for us economically, then that means they would have to betray their largest corporate donors. And these multinational corporations that bankroll the Democratic Party and the DNC and campaigns of Democrats across the country, they don't want the Democratic Party to come out in favor of a single-payer system. They don't want the Democratic Party to endorse tuition-free public colleges and universities. They don't want the Democratic Party to abolish private prisons because if the Democratic Party 
adopted policies that would existentially threaten their largest financial donors, then obviously those donations would go away like that. So that's why they don't do it. So, you know, I, I think that there's going to be some pushback from that comment, what that guy said, you know, economics first. And I think that that makes sense. Um, economics first. Yes, roof over my head and food on the table. Those are the most important. Um, but the Democratic Party, the only reason why they specifically cater to identity politics and overuse identity politics to the detriment of economic issues when they don't have to is because this is the only area where they can actually be progressive. It's cheap. It's lazy. Society has changed. Culture has evolved in this country. We're all more socially liberal in this country. Even young Republicans, they support the legalization of marijuana. They support uh, gay marriage. So it's really easy to come out in favor of social justice, but it's difficult if you're bought off to come out in favor of economic issues. So getting back to this panel here, the overall utility in this panel is so fundamentally important. I cannot stress this enough. So whoever greenlit this segment, Dems, is, Dems Divided, kudos to that person, because this is what MSNBC should have done the day after Hillary Clinton lost. The day after. Because you cannot continue to question why it's the case that the Democratic Party and the left in general is so divided if you're not going to talk to normal people. I hate to break it to you, but these political consultants and Democratic Party strategists in Washington, D.C., they're in the same bubble as the Democratic Party's elites and leaders. And these are the same people who led the party to ruin. Because if you're a Democratic Party strategist, if you were a strategist prior to 2016 and you're still a strategist in 2017, you should have been fired because after losing to Donald Trump, which is a cakewalk, you should have been fired. You are, you're not a strategist because you're not strategic and whatever strategy you have certainly isn't conducive to electoral success. So this is a really great idea and I hope that MSNBC actually continues with this segment because this is something that is necessary. The party has got to be introspective if they ever want to win another election again. Now that the Republican Party is in charge of all branches of government, they are now giving the same banks whose reckless behavior crashed the economy in 2008 even more autonomy. They're empowering them to do the same exact thing, but what the Republicans are doing now is they're taking it a step further. And the Republican Party is now making it more difficult for us to seek legal recourse against these crooks. So according to Jim Puzangera of the Los Angeles Times, he reports that the Senate voted Tuesday night to kill a controversial rule that would have allowed Americans to file class action lawsuits against banks instead of being forced, in many cases, into private arbitration. The move by the Senate followed a similar action by the House in July to rescind the rule. President Trump is expected to sign the repeal legislation, providing a major victory for the financial industry. Vice President Mike Pence cast the deciding vote after the Senate tied 50-50. All but two Republicans, John Kennedy of Louisiana and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, voted to repeal the rule. No Democrats or independents supported the move. The determinations of an arbitrator are binding and consumer advocates say most decisions favor the company. The private proceedings also allow banks to deal with individual problems quietly rather than address widespread abuses. George Slover, senior policy counsel for Consumers Union, said the vote means that big financial companies can lock the courthouse doors and prevent consumers who've been mistreated from joining together to seek the relief they deserve under the law. 
Democrats cited the Wells Fargo case and the recent massive data breach at credit reporting company Equifax as proof that the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau rule was needed to protect consumers from abuses. For years, Wells Fargo used arbitration clauses to block lawsuits from customers who alleged that unauthorized accounts had been opened in their names. Ultimately, the bank estimated that as many as 3.5 million such accounts were opened. Equifax has been criticized for initially making consumers give up their right to sue if they wanted to take advantage of the company's offer of free credit monitoring and identity theft protection after the breach. Equifax later backtracked on that requirement after a public uproar. Now, can anybody guess why the Republican Party wants to give the big banks even more power than they already have? You just have to follow the money. The Republican Party, they no longer even hide the fact that they have been bought off by the big banks and Wall Street. They don't even hide it. They just brazenly legislate in favor of these big banks and make it less difficult for us to sue them when it comes to these clash, class action lawsuits. Now, the reason why they don't like class action lawsuits is because, one, well, these raise a lot of attention. This, these have the tendency to attract media coverage. And two, well, when they are subjected to private arbitration, well, it's going to most likely go in their favor. So all of this is just the Republicans rigging the entire system against the many in favor of the few. It is sheer corruption, and there's no other explanation as to why they would vociferously campaign for something as egregious as this, because this rule is important. And, I mean, for Mike Pence to come and cast a tie-breaking vote, it just shows how corrupt the Republican Party is, and they don't even care about that corruption, because clearly, anytime you have the vice president coming to the Senate to break a tie, that's going to draw attention to the issue, uh, and you'd think they, would, <laughs> they wouldn't want to be so conspicuous in their corruption, but the Republican Party, they don't give a damn. They are shameless in their corruption, and this just shows that they don't care about you. They care about their donors' interests, and if you are one of the individuals that continue to vote for this corporate sellout party, then... Um, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Unless you're living under a rock, then you know that special counselor Robert Mueller announced that he would be indicting Manafort, Gates, and Papadopoulos. And one individual who is a big fan of Team Trump is Pat Robertson, host of The 700 Club, which I thought was a religious show, but it seems like it's more about politics and social commentary than anything. But nonetheless, Pat Robertson decided that he wanted to offer Donald Trump some advice on how to escape indictment or any criminal charges at all. And what he said was just, it was, it was amazing. So take a look. Manafort is an easy target, if I can use that term. Uh, he has clearly been an agent of foreign governments. They have paid him huge amounts of money. And uh, the chances are he hasn't appropriately registered uh, as an agent. And so there's a technical violation that they could get him on. And uh, that may be what they're going after and then one of his aides. But as far as the White House, not a chance. And the, there's an, uh, again an op-ed today in the newspaper about what the president's power is. He can grant a pardon to everybody involved in this thing if he wants to. And uh, there's no such thing as the president obstructing justice if he, uh, if he uh, uh, talks to one of his uh, people in the Justice Department. They're part of the, of the administration's force. Uh, that's his 
side of the of the aisle under the Constitution. So uh, this whole thing has got to be shut down, and I think they've got what they call the fruit of the poisonous tree. Uh, we had that in law school. You learn that that uh, when uh, the source is tainted, then everything that comes out of that source is tainted, and that uh, Fusion GPS. Uh, dossier is tainted and the source of the money coming from the Democratic Party makes it tainted. It isn't a, a, a clear independent uh, dossier. And this means that every indictment like the, of General Flynn that came out of that source is tainted and they've got to quash any uh, indictments or any uh, in interrogatories that result from that. And so most of that stuff's going to get shut down. And I'm, I just believe the president has got to shut this thing down. It's a distraction. He is chief executive officer of the United States of America. He's got to do the nation's business. We are faced with crucial things around the world. Uh, we we're, uh, have several uh, areas of conflict that he's got to deal with. <clears throat> and uh, we have huge matters at home that uh, have got to get our nation moving. We cannot have this uh, destruction. And I think he has his every right to shut Mueller down and say, you've gone as far as you need to. <clears throat> and I have instructed uh, my Justice Department to close you down. He can do it. And he also, you know, the article today of a couple of lawyers was saying he can grant a blanket pardon for everybody involved in everything and say, all right, I pardon them all, you know, case closed, it's all over. And um, I think that's what he needs to do. And I think we will see, it may not be till the first of next year before he gets to it, but he's got to shut this thing down. He's just got to. So the very first question that I have for Pat Robertson is, would you be saying the same thing if Obama was still president? What if Hillary Clinton were elected and Robert Mueller was investigating her? Would you say the same thing then? Because you said here there's no such thing as the president obstructing justice if he talks to someone in the Justice Department. They're part of the administration's force. So would you still come to that same conclusion if your team wasn't in the White House right now? Probably not. And I hate to break it to you, but there is such a thing of obstructing justice. And even though it is the case that the Justice Department is technically an arm of the executive branch, they're still supposed to have autonomy and independence when it comes to these types of investigations. Now, Pat Robertson really went crazy when he stated this. Trump has every right to shut Mueller down and say, you've gone as far as you need to, and I've instructed my Justice Department to close you down and Trump can issue a blanket pardon on everyone and say, I pardon them all, case closed, it's all over, and I think that's what he needs to do. So you are tacitly endorsing the idea that powerful people who are overtly corrupt, like Paul Manafort, overt corruption, that they should get away with crimes? Is that what you're honestly saying? So what if it's the case that Michael Flynn is also guilty and Donald Trump is guilty with corrupt business dealings? You're saying that powerful people should be allowed to get away with committing crimes while the peasants get locked up? Is that what you're really saying? It seems like it. And again, I can't help but think that 
he probably would come to a different conclusion if Robert Mueller was investigating someone else, someone he didn't like. Now, I, I, I too, I'm not a fan of Hillary Clinton, obviously. I'm not a fan of President Obama. But if there was evidence that they committed corruption, you know damn well that Pat Robertson would be all on board with that investigation. And there are some elements of the Trump-Russia investigation that do appear to be a witch hunt. It's no secret that the Democratic Party has resorted to red-baiting. They become neo-McCarthyists, and that is a problem. But I personally, I do think that this investigation is important, especially after it expanded to look into Donald Trump's corrupt business dealings or potential corrupt business dealings that we all know he probably has in Russia. But I mean, if it doesn't, if, if this investigation doesn't yield that result, then oh well, all, I, all I'm saying is that we have to stop playing team politics in this country. We have to. We have to all come to the conclusion that justice in America should be a applied equally to everyone, regardless if they are in power, regardless if they are rich and wealthy. That's something that we've all got to come to the conclusion of in this country, because currently, it's always the case that these rich oligarchs and Wall Street, they get to get away with everything. While there are still people across the country being locked up because they smoked weed or sold weed. It's unacceptable, but Pat Robertson is all in favor of, of obstruction justice and allowing rich elites and oligarchs and people in power to get away with committing crimes unacceptable and we all know that if this wasn't donald trump in power if it was hillary clinton in the white house he would be saying something completely different he'd probably be, be chanting lock her up so look pat robertson is an absolute clown nobody takes him seriously but i still think it's important to at least showcase what he's saying because even though he is a lunatic this loyalty this blind loyalty this partisan hackery that we see from Pat Robertson, this is the cult-like level of worship we see from Donald Trump and his supporters. And to be fair, it's not just Donald Trump, it's also Hillary Clinton and whatnot, but I think it's important that we call out these people and let them know that their biases, it's making them look completely foolish. I think this is the perfect example of blind loyalty and how you, you completely lose your sense of objectivity to play team politics and, you know, help your team win and the other team lose. And it's just, it's dumb. Um, yeah, I, I can't not make fun of him. He is a real-life troll. So, if you've watched this show in the past, then you know that I often talk about how the United States is technically at war with multiple countries simultaneously. We are currently doing drones in Libya, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And, I mean, we've outright invaded... Afghanistan and Iraq. So we are at war with multiple countries, but unbeknownst to a lot of us, we're actually occupying a lot more countries than many of us even knew about. So a few weeks ago, Trump was openly feuding with Maisha Johnson, who is the widow of LaDavid Johnson, a U.S. soldier that actually died while he was on patrol in Niger. Maisha claims that Trump made her cry during his call to her because he reportedly was callous and told her that LaDavid knew what he signed up for. Now, yes, it is the case that the story shed light on just how petty Donald Trump is to openly feud with the widow of a dead soldier. I mean, it shows that he has no class, no integrity whatsoever, but I think there's a really a more important aspect of this story that came to light. And people kind of took a step back and said, well, wait, hang on a second. What are we doing in Niger? Why are we there? Because apparently 
We have a thousand U.S. troops, almost a thousand U.S. troops currently in Niger. So Peter Sertel of Common Dreams explains, if you were surprised to learn the U.S. has nearly a thousand troops in Niger, you're not alone. Senator Lindsey Graham, a South Carolina Republican who serves on the Armed Forces Committee, told NBC he had no idea. Neither did Chuck Schumer, the Senate's top Democrat. Now, let me remind you that Chuck Schumer and Lindsey Graham, these are members of Congress. Congress is supposed to authorize war, but they don't even know that we've invaded and are now occupying a different country. They had no idea. Now, just because we may not be at war with the governments of Niger or Pakistan or Yemen or Somalia, it doesn't mean that we're not waging war there. We're fighting non-state actors, presumably, right? So you still need Congress's approval for that. But if you think that, you know, seven wars or eight wars now with Niger is a lot, well, according to a report from the New York Times, we are currently occupying way more countries. And this story blew my mind. Are you ready? Are you ready for the number of countries that we currently have U.S. troops in? We currently have more than 240,000 U.S. troops in 172 different countries. Not even kidding. So as you can see from this chart... We have U.S. troops in almost every single country in the world, excluding Iran, South Sudan, Myanmar, and the Western Sahara, which is currently being occupied by the Moroccan military. And there's a few others. And let's let's be clear here. Um, a lot of these countries just have as low as one troop there. But there's a substantial amount of countries where we have upwards of 100 troops there. So according to the editorial board of the New York Times, they report that the United States has been at war continuously since the attacks of 9-11 and now has just over 240,000 active duty and reserve troops in at least 172 countries and territories. While the number of men and women deployed overseas has shrunk considerably over the past 60 years, the military's reach has not. American forces are actively engaged not only in the conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Yemen that have dominated the news, but also in Niger and Somalia, both recently the scene of deadly attacks, as well as Jordan, Thailand, and elsewhere. An additional 37,813 troops serve on presumably secret assignment in places listed simply as unknown. The Pentagon provided no further explanation. There are traditional deployments in Japan, 39,980 troops, and South Korea, 23,591, to defend against North Korea and China if needed, along with 36,034 troops in Germany, 8,286 in Britain, and 1,364 in Turkey, all NATO allies. There are 6,524 troops in Bahrain and 3,055 in Qatar, where the United States has naval bases. America's operations in conflict zones like those in Africa are expanding. 400 American Special Forces personnel in Somalia train local troops fighting the Shabab Islamist group, providing intelligence and sometimes going into battle with them. One member of the Navy SEALs was killed there in a mission in May. On October 14th, a massive attack widely attributed to the Shabab on a Mogadishu street killed more than 270 people, which would show the group's increased reach. About 800 troops are based in Niger, 
where four Green Berets died on October 4th. Whether this largest will continue is unclear, but the larger question involves the American public and how many new military adventures, if any, it is prepared to tolerate. So this report is just mind-blowing. And really, it doesn't matter how many military adventures the American people are willing to tolerate because you have continuity of U.S. imperialism across parties, across administrations. George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, I mean, we see continuity. So it really doesn't matter, even if we are opposed to it. I mean, a majority of people are against the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It doesn't matter. Are we pulling out? No, not at all. Now, another thing that's important is the War Powers Clause of the Constitution. So I want to read that to you. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 of the U.S. Constitution grants Congress the power to declare war. The President, meanwhile, derives the power to direct the military after a congressional declaration of war from Article 2, Section 2, which names the President Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. Now, let me ask you all this. Do any of you remember Congress declaring war? in Niger, or Somalia, or Yemen? Because I don't. So we see the US empire expanding to all of these countries, and not a single declaration. And of course, yes, this is, this came with changes that George W. Bush implemented. We all know this as the Bush Doctrine. But that's continuing today. Obama didn't stop the Bush Doctrine, and Donald Trump certainly isn't going to stop the Bush Doctrine. So now, the United States is occupying 172 countries, and in many of them, we're just outright waging war. And again, I want to be clear here, just because we're not at war with the governments of these countries doesn't mean that we're not waging war, because even if you are fighting al-Shabaab or the Taliban, that's still non-state actors that you are waging war with. It's still war. You can try to reframe it, but it's war. War is war. If you have our troops there, that's war. We need to know about it, but we don't. Who knew about this? Who knew that we were in so many different countries? Yes, many of us knew that there were over 900 military bases around the world, but when it comes to all these sub-Saharan countries in Africa, who knew that we had so many troops there? So, it's not just Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya. It's all these countries. It's basically the whole world, with the exception of a few countries. At what point do we come together as a society and demand that the United States bring these troops home, bring all of them home, and stop waging wars that do nothing to stifle terrorism? Nothing. The war on terror has been a complete and utter failure. Just like the war on drugs, but we are continuing them because it's a business. In the United States of America, war is a business. To the U.S. empire, we make money. We prop up the military-industrial complex because this is how we try to stimulate the economy and create jobs. Well, how about this? Why don't we direct that money elsewhere so people don't have to die? I don't know how this isn't just, you know, um, taking up 100% of the time on mainstream media news outlets. I, I don't get it. This is huge. This is absolutely unacceptable. While cable news is currently obsessing over Trump Russia and the Mueller indictments, there's some really significant stories that are getting basically zero attention. And one of them is that the U.S. government just expanded 
its spy apparatus. So according to Dustin Voles of Business Insider in conjunction with Reuters, he reports the U.S. government has broadened an interpretation of which citizens can be subject to physical or digital surveillance to include homegrown violent extremists, according to official documents seen by Reuters. The change last year to a Department of Defense manual on procedures governing its intelligence activities was made possible by a decades-old presidential executive order bypassing congressional and court review. The new manual, released in August of 2016, now permits the collection of information about Americans for counterintelligence purposes when no specific connection to foreign terrorists has been established, according to training slides created last year by the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. The slides list the shooting attacks in San Bernardino, California in December 2015 and Orlando, Florida in June 2016 as examples that would fall under the homegrown violent extremist category. Executive Order 12333, signed by former President Ronald Reagan in 1981 and later modified by former President George W. Bush, establishes how U.S. intelligence agencies, such as the CIA, are allowed to pursue foreign intelligence investigations. The order also allows surveillance of U.S. citizens in certain cases, including for activities defined as counterintelligence. So, in other words, goodbye Fourth Amendment, because the U.S. government will undoubtedly be using this to spy on you, because we already learned that through the Snowden leaks, the NSA was spying on just average Americans. They were spying on World of Warcraft players. They were spying on us every way they possibly could. They were collecting metadata from our phone calls. And all this does is broaden the spy apparatus. But this executive order is just one of many ways our elected officials have chipped away at the Fourth Amendment. Because the Patriot Act, as I mentioned, which was passed, mind you, 45 days after 9-11, made it much easier for the government to spy on ordinary citizens without warrants. So we have executive orders that make it easier for the government to spy on us because look they've already violated that trust we know that they're not just going to use this to spy on homegrown terrorists but they're also going to use this to just spy on ordinary americans so it's executive orders that expand the spy apparatus but it's also legislation like the patriot act that do the same thing now thankfully there is a bipartisan effort being spearheaded by ron wyden and Rand paul to rein in the government's surveillance power so according to reuters them along with 12 other senators introduced legislation that would require the NSA to obtain a warrant for queries on data on Americans under an internet surveillance program. The surveillance program classified details of which were exposed in 2013 by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden also incidentally scoops up communications of Americans including if they communicate with a foreign target living overseas. Those communications can then be subject to searches without a warrant including by the FBI. The USA Rights Act authored by Wyden and Paul would end that practice. So that would absolutely be a huge step in the right direction. But we have to understand that the Fourth Amendment is being attacked from different angles. Like I said, legislatively and through the executive branch as well. But here's what I know. If we are going to have a constitution, then we actually need to follow the constitution. The government is not benevolent when it comes to spying. They're broadening their own powers to continue warrantless spying on American citizens, which is illegal and unconstitutional. So at the end of the day, I don't have much to say about this other, other than the fact that we have to be aware of what's happening. Unfortunately, Edward Snowden, when he released all of the files on NSA spying and whatnot, he basically said that he wanted the American people to make their own decision 
And by and large, it seems like they don't care. A lot of them are ambivalent and don't really care about their own privacy. But this is something that we can't be, we can't become complacent about because the Constitution is important. I think that unreasonable searches and seizures and protections from that, it's, it's fundamental to our democracy. So the fact that our elected officials continue to brazenly violate that is not acceptable. So we have to at least be aware of it and we need to fight them because that's not acceptable. Last week on the show, I talked about how Fox News tried to, quote, dupe college students into thinking that Donald Trump's tax plan was actually Bernie Sanders. So they showed someone from campusreform.org speaking with students, and he would tell them about Trump's tax plan, but tell them it was Bernie's. And then later on, he would reveal that, you know, this is actually Trump's tax plan. Now, the goal was to expose the biases of college students. Now, this is why I specifically took issue with this segment. You don't get to pretend as though you were able to successfully dupe college students into thinking that Trump's tax plan is Bernie Sanders if you don't even show us the fucking footage. We saw a couple of responses from students, but you didn't show us the whole thing. And look, let me ask you this. If you really wanted to prove that these students are dumb and they're just biased in favor of Bernie Sanders and they don't think for themselves, then why didn't you tell them that it was Bernie Sanders' idea to repeal the estate tax? Well, it's because these college students are not dumb and they probably would have called you on your bullshit. But if they did that, then that wouldn't help you with your narrative. So he said that they described Donald Trump's tax plan as, quote, evil and hateful. But you just showed us the clip. They didn't call it evil and hateful. So apparently the actual video made its way to Facebook and we were able to see all of the questions in its entirety. Donald Trump released his new tax plan, which was immediately shot down by his political opponents on the left. But what would those same people think if they were told that that tax plan was actually Bernie Sanders' plan? Today, we're at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. to find out. What were your thoughts on Trump's tax plan when you saw it? Um, it's very, it's better for the upper class than anyone else. Pretty much a uh, horrible for the middle class, especially the lower class. I mean, not ideal. It's probably not the most efficient nor beneficial to the general populace. Pretty negative. <laughs> I feel the same. Yeah, yeah. So Bernie Sanders came out with his plan. Some people call it a compassionate alternative. So we're getting opinions on Bernie's plan. First, one of Bernie Sanders' plans is to enhance the child tax credit, which is tax money given back to families when they have children. What do you think of that? Positive or negative? Positive. All right. Same. I was a social worker, mm -hmm. so I understand how important tax credits like that are. Parents that go, have children go through a lot, and I think giving back money to them really in turn helps the children. I think that's great. I think that's positive, definitely. Positive, definitely. Next up, uh, eliminating the death tax. So when people die, it's a large tax on their estate that goes to their family. What do you think of that? I think that's definitely something that we should be doing. I do think that's a good idea because I'm from New Jersey and we used to have like a really heavy inheritance tax. I'm in favor of that. I would say po more positive. I think I agree with that. Bernie is planning to lower the small business tax rate to a maximum of 25%. I think that's a positive or negative? Um, I definitely think that's a positive. I feel very positively toward that. My family has a small business, so I would definitely think that's a positive thing. Taxing them less makes more sense. Any way we can help small businesses work and like thrive, it's definitely something that's beneficial for the country. I think that would be great. Overall, main idea of the plan, what do you think? Bernie did a good job, bad job? I think overall, good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, good job. All good right. job, Bernie. I think it's a definitely good plan, a positive plan that can help everyone. I think it's pretty good. Like, uh, definitely better than whatever Trump is proposing. I would 
make that leap right there. So, what if I told you this actually is Donald Trump's tax plan, not Bernie's? You got me. <laughs> it is. It's, it's Trump's plan. Hello, darkness, my old friend. All of these are actually Trump's ideas. This is actually Trump's plan. What? Wow. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Wow. I am shocked that I do agree with Trump on certain things. <laughs> okay. Interesting. I'm definitely happily surprised that it like, sounds a lot better than I would have expected it to. I would have imagined he would be a little more stupid than that. Okay, so, but it's not a stupid plan? No, I don't think so. But I think if you said it was Trump, at least for many people it would be more opposition to it just because it was Trump. It could be a policy of giving me ice cream, but if it's Trump, I'd be like, what's in that ice cream? I definitely think there's an initial bias. I mean, I've done it myself. Like, I'll just like, hear the word Trump and I'm like, ugh. Um, I definitely think that's something to like need to be like looked over. People once they hear Trump or like Republican, they become like, oh, they suck no matter what. I think people definitely hear the name and start to think things automatically. And also because a lot of people just go to the same news sources, the same media, it makes it tough to get other points of views. Yeah. So the reason why I showed you the full clip there is because I don't necessarily care that I'm proven right or wrong. I just care that people have all the information to make their own decision about a particular segment. Now, I do share my insight, and yes, it is based on my own biases against Fox News, but what matters is that you are given the accurate portrayal of events. Now, Fox News, they didn't actually portray this clip accurately at all, but first of all, I will say that it is still the case that that interviewer lied about how the students described Trump's tax plan because they said it was, he said that they said it was hateful and evil. Again, that's still not the case. So if you do have additional footage of that, you have to show it to us. Now, second of all, contrary to what I initially assumed, he did ask the students about the estate tax. And it turns out I was incredibly wrong. I, I imbued these students with way too much confidence because apparently they were able to be duped effectively into thinking that Bernie Sanders did support the repeal of the estate tax. And this is problematic because it does seem as though these students are blindly following Bernie Sanders while not actually being familiar with his more important policy positions. Am I excited that these students are enthusiastic about Bernie Sanders specifically? Absolutely, because they're, they're right to assume that Bernie Sanders is looking out for them. But you always have to question somebody's motives, specifically if they come up to you on a college campus with a microphone and a camera because nine times out of ten they're duping you over and trying to make you look stupid but overall in trying to show these students that they're biased and trump's tax plan isn't as bad as it really is it's still disingenuous it's still a misrepresentation of the totality of Donald Trump's tax plan because by and large, the overwhelming majority of tax cuts go to the rich in this tax plan. So yes, there are a couple of giveaways to the middle class, but to say that Donald Trump's tax plan by and large is a tax cut to the middle class is incorrect. So here's the thing. There are two takeaways from this after seeing the full clip. One, I was absolutely wrong and I'm not afraid to admit that. I, I was too confident that these students wouldn't know the specifics about policy. While I'm glad that they do know, generally speaking, that Donald Trump's tax plan is bad, I'm disappointed that they don't know the specifics. Um, second of all, um, this was still a very disingenuous clip for a multitude of reasons. You can't just try to make it seem as though these students are dumb or biased because they 
assume that Trump's plan is looking out for the wealthy because it is. And a couple of portions of that tax plan that you can cherry pick out doesn't change that. Now, the problem that I always have with these types of segments is that they're always cleverly edited and sometimes manipulate people into thinking that the interviewees actually seem more uninformed and dumb than they really are. Now, this is something that everyone does uh, from Mark Dice to Jimmy Kimmel, and both are able to make the other side look completely idiotic. And my main issue with this clip, though, is that it really does present Trump's tax plan in a very disingenuous light when it overwhelmingly really is a giveaway to the rich and these students were correct in their initial assumptions about it. But in the end, I don't think that this was a fail on the interviewer as I initially thought, but it's still absolutely a fail on Fox News because again, if you really want to prove that these college students are just brain, uh, brain, brain dead Bernie bros, then why would you not show the most incriminating part of the video? where he gets them to agree to uh, repeal the estate tax. I don't know. So Fox News, maybe this was just laziness on their part, um, and they wanted to include the meme part of the campus reform video so they can kind of appeal to the two young people that watch Fox News, But um, which is probably just me and Kyle Kalinske, by the way, to, for this show. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, you know, I, I was wrong. These students aren't as informed as I thought, which is, a, which is a problem. And blind loyalty to any politician, including Bernie, is a problem. So we have to be more objective and we have to question even people that we follow. So that's the takeaway. That's the full clip. Now you have the full story. I was wrong in some aspects of this story, but I was also right. Overall, I just want to make sure that you guys have the full picture and know that, yes, I myself have my own biases against Fox News. And they always misrepresent information. They obscure and obfuscate. So it's important that even if they do that, I don't stoop to their level to make them look bad because I don't have to do that. Fox does that on their own. So if I'm able to give you guys a more accurate portrayal of this clip and this segment, then I am more than willing to do that. So there you have it. Make your own decision. Last week on the show, we dedicated a substantial portion of the episode to the DNC's progressive purge, and this week, we actually got a really big ally speak up on our behalf, Tulsi Gabbard, who is continuing to prove that she's one of the few people in Congress that actually cares about the people. Last year's presidential primary revealed deep divides within the Democratic Party that went far beyond substantive issue differences. Now, I wish I could sit here and say that things have gotten better, but it's just not true. Recently, the DNC chair claiming diversity removed a number of people from the party's executive committee, including Jim Zogby, the only Arab American, while allowing lobbyists and consultants to keep their positions. So what did those who were removed have in common? They either supported Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primary, supported Keith Ellison for DNC chair or both. So the DNC's move to cast out those who just haven't fallen in line with the establishment and who are actually demanding real reforms is destined for failure. We must make sure that our voices are heard now as we fight for a new path forward that's more inclusive and that actually strengthens our democracy. It doesn't matter who supported Hillary and who supported Bernie. It's long past time to end the counterproductive infighting and name calling. What we're talking about here is fighting for an open, inclusive, transparent democratic party that best represents and serves the people. 
We need to get rid of the undemocratic system of superdelegates who literally have the power to swing an election, making up one third of the votes any candidate needs to secure the nomination. We must enact open or same-day registration in democratic primaries to make it easier and actually encourage voter engagement rather than making it more difficult. We must put people over profits and progress over special interests. Now we can't do this if you've got just a few power brokers making deals in a back room. We can't do this with a closed process or with superdelegates that can swing an election. Your support, our voices right now are critical. Join me by clicking on the link below to sign our petition to reform the DNC. So I will include a link to that petition in the description box. Please sign it and sign this petition in particular because Tulsi Gabbard, she has a lot of, she's able to draw a lot of attention to this issue. So there's most likely going to be more signatures on her petition than any other change.org petition, for example. So I think it's really important that we sign this petition and get the most names, basically consolidate all of our names of the one petition. Um, now, she addressed everything I wanted her to address. Basically, there's one thing I wish she would have touched on, and that is Tom Perez appointing Donna Brazil to the Rules Committee. But what she said was great. She talked about the DNC purge of progressives. She talked about the need to get rid of superdelegates entirely. She also encouraged open primaries and same-day voter registration. So this is something that is absolutely crucial going forward, because if we actually want to have a thriving democracy, we should remove all barriers to voting. Anything that makes voting more difficult should be eliminated. And closed primaries, they do just that. And when it comes to voter registration, I mean, when you look at states like New York, how are you supposed to know so far in advance to register? Most people don't pay attention to elections until it gets closer to the time that it's going to take place. But you have these states who are, with the parties anyways, they are arbitrarily closing out a lot of potential voters. And this isn't just hurting progressives by keeping incumbent Democrats and corrupt neoliberals in power, but this is hurting the party itself when they don't realize it because you are shutting out potential voters, potential independents and progressives who would otherwise vote for you. And make no mistake about it, what the DNC is doing is they are disenfranchising voters. So while they are super fast to rightfully denounce voter ID laws, they won't even entertain the idea that they are engaging in voter suppression on their own side. And the fact that Tulsi Gabbard actually called out Tom Perez's purge of progressives, we, we really need to give her credit because this is a really brave thing to do. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're an elected Democrat, to call out the DNC, that's huge. That risks your chances of being successful in your re-election campaign because the DNC, as we've learned, they have a lot of tools at their disposal that they can use to screw over progressives. So if they wanted to, they can shut off Tulsi Gabbard's access to NGP Van. They can make sure that she doesn't have as much funding as other Democratic incumbents. So this is something that to come out so boldly against what Tom Perez is doing and what the DNC is doing, Tulsi Gabbard is showing that she is a fearless leader. And she absolutely needs to be praised for what she did here. Because again, even people who may agree with Tulsi Gabbard, they are reluctant to speak out because... 
who would blame them? If you are afraid that you're going to be punished by the DNC, the head of your party, uh, for speaking out, then you're most likely just going to keep your mouth shut. So she's very brave here in doing this, and she's absolutely right. So she's someone who time and again has taken the principled stance and is speaking out against things that are wrong and speaking out for what she believes in. She also resigned from the DNC so she could endorse Bernie Sanders in 2016. We all know about this, and the DNC, well at least the insiders and the donors, did not like this at all. So this is why we see corporate Democrats and neoliberal centrists like Neera Tandon and Peter Dow constantly criticizing Tulsi Gabbard any way they can smear Tulsi. They've thought of it and they've tried it because Tulsi Gabbard is someone who is an elected official. She actually has power right now and she can affect change. So by drawing attention to this really important issue, that progressive purge, I think that is infinitely important and valuable to our cause. So thank you so much to Tulsi Gabbard. Please sign her petition. Well, that is all that I've got for you guys today on this edition of The Humanist Report. As usual, I want to send a special thank you and shout out to all of our PayPal and Patreon contributors because you guys are crucial to the show's existence and you also help us to expand and thrive. So thank you all so much. We could not do this show without you and I really mean that. So I really appreciate everything that you do. We had other stories I wasn't able to get to. Um, a court partially strikes down Donald Trump's ban on transgender soldiers serving in the military. So that's great news. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of stories. It's always difficult to narrow it down, but hopefully you guys were able to see the value in the stories I chose to cover because there's there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. You know, there's so much. Uh, so if I could somehow clone myself and talk about every single news story, I would. But um, yeah, hopefully you guys will not stop with this show. You'll continue the search for news and truth. So I'll, I'll see you guys next week before I start rambling. Have a great week.